Welcome to the Constructed Futures podcast with Hugh Seaton. Today, I'm here with Terry Beauvoir, CEO of Building Knowledge Systems. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hugh. It's great to talk with you today. Terry, let's start with what you do. Well, I'm an architect by training. I graduated from University of Michigan with an MARC degree in 73. And for 40 years, I've been involved in architecture. And I view architecture broadly. And so I've designed buildings. I've worked my way up through architectural firms and had my own architectural firms. And I do a lot of consulting with different groups like NASA and Department of Energy. So I, I probably have a broader view, not to compliment myself, but just to sort of mention that, you know, there's so many silos of specialty within the AEC, which we all have to respect. At the same time, there are those of us who really love it all, you know, and it isn't like I can't focus on one area. It's just I don't spend all my time only in one silo. Even that goes for I've, I've worked in an engineering firm. I've worked a lot of construction jobs, and I think it contributes to my perspective of how I view the AEC. And I love it. I love architecture. And so I'm an enthusiastic participant in many areas within the building industry. That's cool. And actually, we met each other first at the AEC Hackathon in 2013, I think. That is correct. And Facebook. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about about sort of your view of technology and, and AEC and how you've kind of seen it move over time. Well, I, I have a long view and, and, a, and a loving view of how it's taken the AEC to sort of come along. I'll, I'll sort of set the bar. In 1977, after consulting with NASA for a number of years as an architect, they engaged me because um, they wanted to build a space station. And it was still the Stanley Kubrick idea of what a space station was going to be, the 2001 Space Odyssey. There's really smart people, and they knew they weren't architects. They were vehicle designers. And they were designing like seats that people could sit in for a period of time to endure you know, getting launched into outer space and coming back down fairly quickly. So that when they started to look at designing a space station, they got architects involved. And I was one of the first to get involved. And I loved it. It was to me, you know, like a dream come true as far as being involved in something that was very exciting. And it really was architecture because they had buildings, they had homes, they had streets. If you look at some of the views of what the inside of a, a space station were going to be like, very architectural. So these are those big. Those are, these are those big spinning wheels, right? Yeah, not, yeah. Not, not like space Skylab or, or you know what we have now, which is tin cans strung together. That is correct, and and it has to do with budget. It has to do with the funding cycles of government and NASA being subject to that, and it has to do with a lot of things. But anyhow, I got exposed to in in the late seventies, early eighties. I was exposed to artificial intelligence, virtual reality advanced computer graphics, high-speed computers, a whole lot of things that I looked at. And I was looking at it like, wow, we have these tools to design a space station. And so I was able to speak at the 1977 National AIA Convention in um, San Diego. And after a 45-minute talk on all of this technology that NASA had that could be transferred to the building industry, and it would be really, really helpful, the first question I got from an architect was, why would an architect want to use a computer? Love it. And I don't mean that in a derisive way. No, that's just where the world was. I thought it was somewhat ironic. And, and it's, re it's really easy for people like ourselves and other people to get out ahead of the audience, you know. And I'm, to them, I was talking about stuff that was, you know, not in their lifetime. You know, I'm talking about using artificial intelligence and virtual reality and robotics 
to design a space station. And these guys are trying to design, you know, a triple A building or something like that and, and just make it through the month. And, and so I've learned to really appreciate how important it is for us to learn how to communicate all across the architecture world and engineering and construction. Because the reality is one of the main things that some of the technology that's coming along that we can talk about, it's going to allow the AEC to collaborate across the silos more effectively and efficiently. And I know that's been promised for decades. And we went through the years when CAD was going to solve anything, everything. And then BIM was going to solve everything. And now we're hearing about artificial intelligence is going to solve everything. And so I have a level of understanding that includes, yeah, I know what marketing people of software and hardware say about their product. And then I know what architects and engineers and contractors have to do in the field to make this stuff work. Wouldn't you say, though, that each of those times when maybe it didn't solve everyone's problems, they were all legitimate advances? You know what I mean? Like one of the, the things people get, people get real wound up because this new thing hasn't solved every problem, and yet it has moved the ball significantly forward. Well, I, that's a very good point to make, Hugh. I appreciate that because... As in architecture itself, architecture itself, the process is not linear. It's iterative. So we're always looping back and checking on what we've already thought or done or designed. And then we move forward into the different phases. And the same thing with the technology that supports architects. You know, an advance into CAD, you know, they bring it into the industry and the early adopters take it on. And that's when, you know, they find out what works and what doesn't work. And so this is evolutionary, but it's an iterative looping forward progress. And so you're absolutely right to point that out. It, it, it isn't linear. It isn't like being, you know, all of the software companies are perfect and have all of their products working, you know, exactly the way the industry needs it. And we can just buy them and use them. There's a, they need industry feedback. And that's why I say I really like all of the aspects of the industry, including architecture, engineering, construction, but also, also the hardware and software companies that make the products that we've been using now for decades. There's a tendency sometimes to think that if only, you know what I mean? If, if only we got this done, there would be utopia. And there's never utopia. All you, you're just uncovering new things, new challenges and new opportunities. And you're thinking of that from the, from the architecture office point of view or from the software point of view? Well, I'm saying from any, any perspective that, that people will, we often will say, if only we made BIM work the way it should, it'd be, it, you know, it'd be awesome. And it, it'll be, it may be better. But you're just going to find that, okay, well, we've, we've made one part of the process, you know, significantly better, but now it uncovers the fact that our supply chains are a mess or, it may, you know, that no one talks to each other or, you know, you name it. But it's a cool thing that progress always unearths the next area that you need to go fix. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things about being a, an, an optimist, and I heard this description years and years ago on the radio, someone was talking about something and they said, well, don't you see the downside of this? And they said, well, I'm an optimist. We don't see those things. That's funny. And, and, it, and it isn't a choice. He just said, I am an optimist. That's what I do. I look at things optimistically. And it, it made me feel better about my own sort of approach to looking at this stuff. I don't want to be a Pollyanna and just think that everything is wonderful, but I can see the benefit of, of approaching technologies and how it could contribute to uh, making architecture, the practice of architecture and engineering and construction better. And it has, you know, and, and the stuff coming up now is going to be even more exciting. At a time when it's a very serious 
issues that we're dealing in with the pandemic crisis. And, and it can't be overlooked that there's a lot of really serious, bad, negative, sad things going on. I also look at, well, what good can come out of this? You know, just because that's the way I look at things. You, you ask sometimes, or you can ask, well, what's different this time? Why, why won't it just be another little iterative pop? And one thing that I've come across, um, a couple of people have said this, is for the first time, a lot of this stuff is coming from peak consumers. It's not, it's not a you know a lab or or a, a you know a software company in Silicon Valley that that you know splits the atom and oh my God, this is amazing. But a lot of this is is, is already adopted to some degree by people on their iPhones and their and their their Androids, which is amazing actually. That's a perfect point to make, Hugh, because in the early days when everything was a technology push, everybody yearned for the consumer pull. And now there's so much consumer pull, like with the use of smartphones and IoT in the home and things like that, that we do exactly what you said as far as we're in an environment now that we're not trying to convince our clients to get a smartphone so that we can call them, they already have one. And I point that out because I remember in the early days, I remember when I got my first email account and an architect asked me, why would you get an email account? <laughs> and I thought, well, it's interesting. You know, I said, there's things going through the air that are invisible that you don't know about because you don't have an email account. You might want to get one. And it, it's that kind of interest in benefiting ourselves that makes technology successful. If we can find technology that benefits ourselves, we like it. If it wastes our time and frustrates us and, and delays us being successful, which it can do those things, then we don't like it. And so that, but that's normal, that's human, and that's part of the process of, of uh, uh, advancing forward. Speaking of advancing forward, uh, the plan is that, that this will air right after New Year. So how do you see you know, this is 2020. It's like an ongoing meme about how, how much fun, uh, and I say that facetiously, 2020 has been. How do you see, you know, speaking to the optimist in you, how do you see 2021 kind of changing? I, I see it changing considerably. If you think of something like the Kentucky Derby, where you watch the horses walk around and then they, you know, finally they get in the stalls and then you're ready for the gates to open. I think there are a lot of things that have collected themselves like that during this 2020, you know, pandemic period of time, that when things do open up again, and nobody knows when that's going to happen, and I'm not going to make any projections or predictions, and it may not happen, you know, evenly across all geographic locations and building types and industries. But I think there's going to be a burst of energy coming out of the back end of this pandemic that will benefit from the people who take this period of time to really assess and look at where the advancements can be made based on the fact that, I don't know about you, but I've had some back-to-back 12-hour -back Zoom days in the last months. The running joke was it's been one long meeting since March. Yeah. Yeah, it can be like that. It's crazy. And get this, you know, I, I like teaching. I love teaching. And I've, I've been teaching, you know, since, since 2005 in various locations. But I've also been teaching online. I started teaching in a virtual world in 2005. And in the last month, I've taught in Bangladesh, India, Shanghai, Hawaii, Los Angeles, London, and probably a few other places I, I, I am not thinking about right now. 
from my the laptop on my desk. That's awesome. Yeah. And I feel it's such a privilege. I'm not bragging, believe me, it's a lot of hard work, but it's a, such a privilege to be able to reach these people because I used to do that kind of travel and teaching, but I'd have to get on a plane, fly to London, get in a hotel. And I love London. It's one of my favorite cities on earth. I'll go there anytime. But to be able to do that and then, you know, after two hours, I take a break and I eat dinner and I work on something else. You know, I'm not spending all my time traveling and 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 going places. I will travel again as soon as they start opening things up. But that's why I'm saying taking advantage of this time to do what we can do. And I'm sort of building this idea of I'm really getting an incredible perspective on what students are learning all over the world about architecture. So it gives me a lot of thoughts and motivation to make contributions to those areas sort of across the all of the colleges as opposed to just pick one college and teach there kind of thing before the um, pandemic. So I think it is opening up opportunities as well as the unfortunate, horrible effects it's had on some people's health, on family members, on curtailing businesses. I'm really worried about all the businesses that aren't open now. Hopefully when, when we're on the other end of this, that there's, there's you know, people are able to, to revive some of what's been really hard hit. You're right. I don't know whether there's going to be any restaurants in San Francisco if this keeps up for much longer. I mean, it's really serious in many, many places, uh, L.A. and San Francisco. And I don't think it's that different. I talk to some people back east and they go, oh, yeah, you have that problem out there. And I look at their stats and they're right there with California as far as the percentages and the, you know, per 100,000 people, the same things are happening on the East Coast states as they are in California. It's just that California has 40 million people. So all of the raw numbers are higher. It looks worse. And, and by some, I don't mean to be an apologist for California. That just happens to be where I am. Well, this is like New York City, though. New York City is eight and a half million people. So any, you know, any number that comes out of it is a big one. But what's, what's interesting is, you know, you talk about how, you know, it, it, next year we can expect, regardless of when, you know, people get immunized and, and we're, we're, you know, on our way back to normalcy. We'll never again look at distance the way we did. And we'll never look again, look at, at certain things as barriers that, that, that kind of weren't. We just didn't know that. Austin, Texas right now is, is enjoying an incredible boom of people moving down there. And it's be, because it's, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to be in New York to do certain things and you don't need to be in San Francisco to do certain things, but it's warm in Austin and there still is a, a bit of a tech community. And I think this reordering of the economy around a different view of distance, I don't think we've even started to understand what that's going to be. It, the population is increasing in Florida from people moving down from the Northeast. And Hewlett Packard Enterprises, which was founded and started in Silicon Valley, just moved to tech, announced their move to Texas. And so I, I see all that happening. The other thing is I talk to a lot of architects all over the world and there's an example. Um, my roommate from college at University of Michigan is the president of um, Cambridge 7. And so I was talking to him about how is it affecting their business. They do a lot of children's museums. Now, children's museums aren't the most um, common building type that architects might work on. But what he told me was they are redesigning all of their existing children's museums as well as rethinking the way they're going to design new children's museums. Because if you're familiar with children's museums, first of all, there's children, there's parents, there's grandparents, you know, there's a fun day uh, going to a place that wants you to touch everything and pull levers and look at these things. 
It's a petri dish. Yeah. And and so what he's saying is they're redesigning the whole thinking around touching things. And I think there's going to be a world of information that comes out of incredibly uh, uh, talented and creative firms like Cambridge Seven that we can apply to all the buildings that we do. Even the fact that they're redesigning the entrances and exits. So when people exit the building, they're not walking by the people that are entering the building. I mean, simple things like that, that I think when we're forced to make changes for a reason, it can be, and again, I don't want to overlook all of the, the, the negative, sad stuff that's happening, but there can be some positive that comes out of it. And I, I, I see that happening. And a lot of people are working remotely. I mean, I think um, Facebook and Google have announced they're not going to have people back in their offices until mid-2021. I think that's probably true of, of almost everywhere. And so I'm finding, I, I, I interviewed some clients, they want to do a house, and uh, both of them work for high-tech companies. And they said, well, we're working at home now because we have to, and we each need our own separate office, and we need our own separate hobby rooms, in addition to, you know, all the other things that normally go into a house. And so I think it is going to affect all architecture from residential all the way through the most technical buildings if we're you know, designing home offices into the original concept of the house, that sort of changes things. I mean, some people can take the third bedroom and transfer it into an office. And then the other person's going, well, what about my office? I need an office too. Well, and you think differently about it when it isn't something that you just kind of get some stuff, stuff done at night or in, over the weekend. When it's where you really work, you just think more solidly about it. I want good Wi-Fi. I want a good chair. I want to, you know, get that extra monitor. And then in a lot of places, they're making uh, ADUs more legal than they were in the, in the past, you know, accessory dwelling units. So a city like San Jose, which has really said, bring it on. You know, we want everybody that's got a house and room enough on their property to have an ADU to build one. The city of Vancouver in Canada did an interesting restructuring of the zone. So everybody in an R1 zone can build an ADU now or a second uh, home almost. It can be a rental unit or it can be their home office. So you, you see ad adaptation out of necessity. And I think architects are really good at looking at those things and finding those things and then doing something with them. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm hopeful that everybody that's practicing architecture can find a good way out of it for their own businesses out of the, this pandemic era. And hopefully it won't go on too much longer, but I, th I think it'll be with us for a while. You know, certainly the, the, the changes and the changes in perspective are, are going to, you know, this is, I think, generational. It'll be decades before we're, we're, we think like we, if we ever do again. I mean, this happened a hundred years ago. So obviously people did get kind of used to not having pandemics, but it'll be, it'll be for the rest of our lives for sure. Something that we, we think of. I think you're absolutely right, Hugh, because, you know, because I talk to a lot of students through a lot of universities, I see sort of what's going on. And the students right now are much more, I mean, I started architecture long time ago when you felt like you had a lot to learn and, you know, you wanted to be this sort of master builder kind of approach and learn everything. And, and the, our influences were like the Charles and Ray Ames studio and Raymond Lowy and, you know, different people that had a sort of a studio approach to things. But the students now, they're really like, they're really questioning some standard ways of thinking that have been architectural practice. And they're less, you know, trying to learn, well, what's postmodern or what's post-postmodern or what's post-post-postmodern. They're rethinking everything. 
they're looking at, you know, the, the circular economy, they're looking at recycling, they're looking at saving the earth, they're looking at healthy buildings, they're looking at a lot of stuff, you know, how air pollution. And so it's really, I see a lot of push coming into the profession from that direction, which is really good, because I think, I think that the profession will benefit from it. Well, and what is it, 40% of, of solid waste comes out of the built environment and 40% of energy use comes out of the, the, the built environment. So there's definitely room to, to think differently and, and think more efficiently, effectively, um, and just you know, not, not, not assume the old way is the, is the right way. Right. And I think if we can get engaged, you know, the product manufacturers and the material uh, suppliers in this effort, rather than condemn anybody as being contributors to the pollution and isolating them, I think we can get the concrete industry to improve and get the various industries that can benefit from a transition to participate in the improvement of the building industry as well, because they'll benefit from it. And we don't, I don't, there's not enough people really trying to make the building industry work to develop any kind of enemies list or, you know, decide that these people are good and these people are bad. I mean, we're all in this together and we've got to look at how to increase our ability to collaborate and also respect and appreciate everybody in all of the silos. And everything, I mean, we've talked about evolution now in a couple of different guises, and this is another one. You know, for, for all the fact that, that, for example, the oil industry gets a bad rap for, you know, contributing so much, our, everything around you is was created because of the oil, with the energy and materials supplied by, by hydrocarbons. It's time for us to continue to move on. There's been a lot of push, you know, to move on from coal um, into natural gas and, and then beyond. But, you know, at the end of the day, most, of, most if not everything around you was underwritten by by cheap energy that came from from uh, hydrocarbons so you know you, you can't you can't be too negative about the past but it is absolutely you know our our job to to, to figure out how to move on yeah and I don't think we need I'm, I'm not only not be negative about the past but how to be you know sort of learn from it James Marston Fitch who started the one of the programs at Columbia University in historic architecture he wrote two books one was the historical shape uh, forces that shape architecture or shape buildings and the other is the technological forces and he always tells this story or he used to tell the story that I loved I, I heard about it when I was in architecture school that when the the iron and steel era came upon architecture all of a sudden they they could physically build taller buildings skyscrapers didn't occur until Otis invented the passenger safety elevator because nobody wanted to walk more than six floors up. And so that was the limit. But as soon as you had an elevator, all of a sudden you see Chicago becoming the home of the skyscrapers and other places as well. And so it's sometimes it's two or three things in technology that allow for these advances in architecture. And the push is always economics. But I like to think of economics, and, and because you mentioned you know, the topic already as a form of energy. Money is just for a form of energy. I mean, you get it from your clients and then you can do something with it. So as the architects turn the, the, the idea of, of funds from their clients into the energy of them being good architects, I think that we can really learn to participate more fully in the building industry and benefit from and, and contribute to the next sort of millennial uh, approach to looking at the AEC as an industry that has really delayed. I mean, we're we're decades behind other industries that have already adopted advancing technology. 
I mean, we've all seen the chart where regular industries are, are sort of hockey pucking up and the average is going up, sloping up. And then there's this red line across the bottom that's going nowhere. And it's called the building industry. And, and while I don't think that's as true today as it was five years ago, I do think we have so much to gain. I don't look at it as a negative. You know, I look at it as, my God, if we could get the building industry all working together to to harvest the benefits of using this technology in a collaborative, efficient, effective way, the building industry would be even more wonderful than it is now. You know, I think, remember the, uh, the old quote from William Gibson, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Exactly. I feel like, you know, if you talk to some of the some of the bigger construction companies like DPR and Mortensen and, and some others, these are very well run, technologically savvy companies. The, the issue is that that right next to them on the ENR 400 are companies that are less so. So some of this, I think, is, you know, some companies for various reasons, it's not important to their competitiveness that they that they um, transform just now. But down the, you know, kind of smaller companies that are still, you know, billion dollar companies that are less, you know, have less resources to explore some of this, just making them benefit from some of the learnings from or helping them benefit from some of some of what's been learned and explored by their larger brethren is huge. I mean, the problem with the, the building industry is a few, but but in terms of digital transformation, is it's enormous. And I think we have a bad tendency to Describe it as if it's all one thing. Six hundred and thirty thousand companies have fewer than five. Was it fewer than ten people? Right, right. And it has been that my whole career. There's an argument that some of why that's true is because of the contract structures allow companies to not consolidate and survive. That shouldn't maybe, but that's a whole other podcast. Well, I mean, you bring up an interesting point because if you look at even in our two careers. If you look at the number of companies, architects, engineers, contractors that have gone out of business in our lifetime, I mean, it is a difficult place to try to make a living. So if you look at the people or the, the companies that are doing really well right now, you can look at the, the large ones, the medium sized ones and the small ones and learn from them. Like, how are they viable at a time when it is challenging to figure out how to use this. And I talked to architects, I've talked to two architects in the last 24 hours that use Revit and have never used the BIM capabilities in Revit. Really? It's just geometry, just making models. Yeah, yeah. And the, the fact of the matter is I think they are and they just don't know it, <laughs> but they just don't turn a switch that says I'm using BIM right now. So they don't necessarily feel that. And I know of architectural programs that are still trying to figure out how to get their students back to the drawing board with parallel bars and, you know, thousand age paper and sharpening your pencil. You know, so we're a broad and wide industry and it's all good. I mean, I love people that still hand draw for sketches in architecture and things like that. So it's like, how do we all benefit each other in moving forward as an industry that benefits our clients so that each one of the things that are a component are viewed favorably um, and not as like an additional service that they can do without? Well, so we're, we're coming towards the end here. I'd love to end with a kind of coming back to 2021 and, and what, you, what you think people should be looking out for. What are you excited about and what should people pay attention to? I think the most exciting thing for us, that we're all going to see is this convergence of the different industries' use of technology, and I'll give a good example in a minute, in that 
and we haven't looked at that before. And the other thing is, and you know this from your career, the software companies have marketed to silos and they might have a product that they market to, you know, movie makers that they don't market to architects because they go, oh, architects don't need to know about that or whatever. But if I look, I'm looking at the building industry from the point of I look to my right and I see movie makers and I see Mandalorian being made with Unreal Engine and using Twin Motion. And I look to my left and I see the product manufacturers using different kinds of technology and different things that allow them to create objects that we have to incorporate in our buildings. And I think that the, the gaming industry and the interest that it has, I mean, when I started in architecture, there was no gaming industry. And now if Hollywood, if Disney makes a movie, they make $500 million now on a movie. And if it's an Avengers movie, you know, or something like that. Now, name an architect that's going to make $500 million off of the next building they design. I can't think of one. And so we have to look at, okay, well, what are they doing right that we're not doing yet? What tools do they have? Because if you think of the movie industry and the gaming industry, they're doing terrain modeling and building modeling at a level that when I look at it, I'm almost jealous. And I want how they did it and can I do that? And so that's one thing. And so I'm looking at also tools that help, not just, it's not like I want to play computer games because I don't, but I want to have architecture be as effortless and efficient and wonderful for me and my experience and my clients and be able to create objects and products and videos that I can you know, email to my client so they can see it or I can show in a Zoom, shared screen Zoom meeting or something. So I see that being the biggest thing in the next decade, really. And certainly I expect some of that to be happening in 2021. That's really exciting. So listen, Terry, thank you for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this. My pleasure, Hugh. Always great to talk to you.